President Biden orders all businesses with 100 employees or over to require the COVID vaccine. We, we explore whether Romans 13 applies to situations like this, and we discuss Calvinism. My name is Sean Clinton, and this is Guy to Freedom Show. The show is sponsored by Anchor. It's the easiest way to make a podcast. So if you always want to start a podcast but didn't know where to begin, Anchor is for you. Anchor is very simple to use and is also free. All you do is simply record the audio from your phone, computer, laptop, or wherever, edit it, and then post it. You can monetize it with sponsorships or donation buttons. You can distribute to sites like our podcast, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Check it out at Anchor.fm or download the app. Again, it's Anchor.fm or download the app. Alrighty, so we are back. I hope everyone is having such a great week. So we have a lot to get to today, so let's jump right into it. And man, it's been a, it's been quite a week. It's been really quite like quite a bit in the last few days or so. Just with, with what Biden has done and just everything. But before we get to that, I would be remiss if I didn't um, bring this up in the beginning. Um, so I'm recording this episode on September 11th, 2021. So today marks the twentieth and uh, marks the twentieth day. Uh, twenty sorry, it marks twenty years since the September eleventh attacks on. And kind of just recap of that day. Basically, there were nineteen uh, nineteen nineteen terrorists who hijacked aircraft. Uh, see, two of them hit the world tra- um hit the world twin ten- hit the twin towers. I can't speak for some reason. Yeah, two of them hit the twin towers, you know, um, and you know, one um, went into the Pentagon in Washington D.C., and the last one was heading towards, I believe, the Capitol. But thanks to the you know, the bravery of the passenger passengers on board, they revolted against a terrorist on there, and um, ended up crashing on in a field in Shanksville, Pennsylvania. And you know, it was just again, it was a very tragic day. For many, many Americans, about three thousand or over three thousand three thousand Americans died that day. Many, many more injured. You know, the World Trade Center was completely completely destroyed, and all that. And it just it's a complete disaster. And now, kind of like, kind of give you my nine eleven story <laughs> per se, if you will. Um, I mean, thing is, I was only like I was only three years old when this happened. So I don't really remember it, honestly. I mean, I remember kind of images. I've seen images of it, of the event. I believe kind of the tower's on fire or something like that. But I just, I don't actually remember the day. And even if I did like see the picture of it, I would not have understood what was going on. So I can only imagine like the day, like how the day was for Americans. Like, just simply... People describing it and all that, and just kind of seeing like, like documentaries or movies about it. It doesn't really fulfill like what exactly went on that day. All just the horror and just the the sadness and the tragedy that that was felt all throughout the nation. And so again, and so, and it's been twenty years since that day, and. And again, you know, 
There's a slogan that goes around saying, you know, may we never forget. Because not only not only did, you know, not only was it just a tragedy, but something did, good did come out of it. Something, something really good. So the next day, the next thing for the next like few weeks or so, um, America was united, more united than it has been in a long time. Like there was no people didn't see each other as like whites, blacks, Republicans, Democrats, or anything like that. They, they saw them all saw each other as Americans. And unfortunately, for, unfortunately, we have fallen way from that way from that and it's sad that it took a tragedy like that to unite americans and what's sad to really think about is that it'll probably take another tragedy probably way worse than that to really unite americans and even then just the way our culture is today i don't really see that actually happening i see probably one side blaming the other and just still that sort of nonsense. I mean, I hope I'll be wrong about that. And God forbid anything actually happens like that. But still, I just don't really see just the way a country is today. It's quite sad. But again, I mean, just remember, kind of enough here. We remember, you know, all the folks who lost their lives that day. And remember and pray for the families who lost loved ones um, during this day. I mean, again, it's just horrible tragedy, and again, may we never forget. Um, but one last thing I want to kind of hit on that just really caught my eye today. So again, the slogan that goes around for 9-11 is, may we never forget. May we never forget. But fortunately, there are people who have forgotten, not only who have forgotten, but want to really mem- minimize what happened in 9-11. So there's this um, lady named uh, Pam Keith uh, from Florida, and she made this tweet today, today of all days, and here's what she tweeted out. On January 6, 2021, 9-11, September 11th, 2001, ceased, ceased being the worst thing that happened to America in my lifetime. It's really weird and a painful and painful painful to process and say that, but it's the truth, and quite frankly, it's not even close. So, so what she's saying here is that the events of that happened on uh, January sixth of this year were not only not only worse than nine eleven, there it wasn't even close. I mean, nine eleven was. Just a little, just a bar fight, according to her, compared to what happened on January 6th. Like, January 6th, to her, was apparently way, way worse than 9-11. So, I want to show a couple of things right here. I want to first show an image. This is from January 6th. So, here we have here, you know, the people that, about a, a few hundred people that stormed the Capitol, built on that day. Again, it was a bad, it's a very evil thing that happened. But again, they, you know, like Democrats and the media like, throw around this word like insurrection and, you know, when all that. It wasn't really an insurrection. It was more of a riot. It definitely was a riot, but 
they were not even cl- they weren't even close. They weren't not even close to doing any, doing any actual damage to the government. I mean, the government started went back just a few hours later, or really a couple of hours later, after this. And again, there's a few hundred idiots, and they they had no chance of actually succeeding in what they wanted to do. And so now I want to show an, uh, a video from 9/11. So this is a video of the second second plane on the Zenyatta 175 uh, crashing into the South Tower of the World Trade Center. So here's that video right here. We've seen it from the front angle before, but not from this angle. Okay, so in that video, you see the plane, the commercial airliner, filled with passengers, with about uh, over 100 passengers on there, crashing into the South Tower, which was still filled with people. I mean, they were not, that, that tower was not evacuating, even after the North Tower got hit. So right there, you saw hundreds, maybe a thousand people just die instantly right there. And throughout the day, as the towers burned, more people died, and the, as the towers collapsed, Way more people died, you know, people who were stuck in there, firefighters, uh, police officers who were stuck in there. Uh, people were seriously injured <laughs> during this. Like, forever injured um, physically and mentally as well. People have suffered, will suffer with uh, PTSD and mental illness illnesses thanks to this. People have gotten cancer, died from cancer thanks to all the debris from the, uh, from the towers that collapsed. And let's not forget, um, also the two other planes, the American 77 crashing into the Pentagon, killing about a, 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 over 100 people, a hundred of people right there. And also United 93. I'm cra- you know, again, thanks to the, to the bravery of the passengers on that flight, they revolted against the, against the terrorists and they and crashed into a field. But still a lot of lives were lost. Again, so over 3,000 Americans were lost that day. Over 3,000. And one one person tragically died on January 6th, and that was Ashley Babbitt. And so, and um, on January 6th, I mean, besides the murder, uh, kind of the killing of, of Ashley Babbitt, the worst thing that happened was that some windows were broken and everything, some you know, cops were beat up. Unfortunately, I mean, that's, again, this, what happened January 6th was evil. It was absolutely horrible. But, and the, <clears throat> what, what happened on January 6th cannot even compare to what happened on, on September 11th. People were, got burned alive, buried alive, were stuck there for, stuck underneath for days under the rubble. People lost their family members. And the country, you know, went a complete shut, uh, you know, complete chaos mode and went to war because of this. I mean, seriously, so how dare someone say, how dare someone say that this, that little scuffle on January 6th, a few bumbling idiots storming the Capitol on January 6th was somehow way worse than what happened on September 11th. 
Like, that is just sickening. That is sickening right there. I don't care. <laughs> I don't care what side you're on. You should be ashamed of yourself. Um, Republican or Democrat, you should be ashamed of yourself if you say that January 6th was worse than 9-11. Than September 11th, what happened on September 11th, 2001. I mean, there's no excuse for that. And you should know better. Especially for those who were alive on September 11th. Who knew, who saw exactly what was happening. To say that that, that was somehow less than what happened January was 6th. It just, it boggles my mind. It boggles my mind. That people actually believe that. If I heard the tweet out on today of all days... It's just gross. It's absolutely gross. Alrighty, so... So that'll be all for September 11th, 9-11 for right now. So now let's get on to the... The main part I want to get to for today. So let's just say... Let's kind of get some background here. So remember back on, to, back on the... When Trump was president... All you heard from Democrats was that he's a he's an authoritarian, with that you know is a dick you know he's also a dictator who wants to rule over people and control people and all that. But the thing is, the fact is that Trump was probably the least authoritative president we've had in a long time. Like for prime example, what happened during COVID. I think probably most presidents would have tried to lock down the entire country. Especially probably Obama, definitely Biden would have locked down the entire country with uh, when COVID first hit. But Trump didn't do that. Trump could have easily went and said, alright, we're going to shut down the entire country for a couple weeks or so. And, you know, everybody cooperate and all that. But he didn't do that. What he did, you know, he laid out kind of the, what was going on. Kind of gave you some guidelines that, you know... People should consider. But what he, what he ultimately did was give the power over to the states to decide, you know, what's the best course of action. And as we, as we saw, um, states like Florida, Arkansas, and a few other places, you know, didn't shut down at all. Uh, Georgia, for example, was shut down for just a little bit and then that opened back up. And then places like New York and California never really shut down and never has not yet opened back up yet, really. I mean, for the most part, mostly those places are open, but there's still a lot of restrictions. But that's, that's exactly how the president is supposed to act. Exactly how our federal government is supposed to be. It's supposed to delegate powers that are not within the power of the federal government and give them to the states. So what Trump did was the the right move. And as we saw, I mean, honestly, obviously the lockdowns didn't work at all. I mean, we saw the same numbers in California as we saw in Florida, for example. And really, if you look at the the death rates in the state, in the above states, California rates above Florida. So... But my point is, is that what President Trump did 
exactly how a president is supposed to be. So to say that he is, he was somehow an authoritarian makes no sense. There was no point in his presidency where he actually did anything authoritative. Now, what he said, said um, on the other hand, that's a completely different story. But we also got to remember that Trump said a lot of crap. A lot of stupid crap. So we can't really take that seriously. But Biden, on the other hand, uh, he is a complete authoritarian. I mean, it's very obvious. He's completely gone full authoritative and a complete dictator and all that. And a prime example is what he did, the order he just put out within the past uh, couple of days, a few days or so. And it's regarding um, COVID vaccines. So, before I get to that, um, I, I want to kind of, again, real quick go over my... Um, Brief thoughts on the COVID vaccine and COVID in general. I mean, I've given my thoughts on the COVID vaccine before, but I just want to—I just want to repeat it again. As I've seen, as I saw, the data I've seen from sources that I trust, and then this, these sources are not from the CDC or the uh, World Health Organization. And they're not connected to them at all. So these are sources I trust, and according to this, to the data, um, the COVID vaccine is effective. It is very effective, actually. Um, and so, if people want to get it, and, I mean that's perfectly fine. But at the same time, now going going to COVID itself, we got to remember that COVID nineteen has a ninety nine point nine nine percent survival rate. I mean, that's a very high survival rate and a very low death rate. A very low death rate. So it makes sense why, you know, some people want, if the, especially if you're older and more health vulnerable, if you're more vulnerable health-wise, it makes sense if you want to get a vaccine for extra protection. But at the same time, you know, as well, if you, especially if you're younger and more healthy, and you look at the data regarding the COVID COVID itself, you know, you see, well, I mean, it's no point. And there's no point of me getting a vaccine right now. And that's kind of where I am. I mean, there's more reasons why I'm not getting the vaccine too. But I'll get to that in just a little bit. But that's my general take over the vaccines and over COVID. And again, if you want to get the vaccine, go right ahead. I'm not going to, I mean, I'm not going to tell you to not get it. I'm not going to tell you to get it. As it's completely up to you if you want to get it. And it's completely up to you if you don't want to get it. And that's what's so great about America, at least for now, is that people actually have the choice of whether or not if they want to, you know, get a shot of something or, their, or if they want to receive any treatment or whatever. That's totally up to them. That's totally up to them. That's how it should be. But unfortunately, we have a... Um, a group of people, a group of people in this country, who don't want um, y'all to have a choice, who want to make the choice for you, who want to force you to get this vaccine. And this is part of the reason why I won't get the vaccine too. One because I don't see the point, and two because of this nonsense right here, of the elites and the government telling you, if you want your freedom back, 
if you want to do all these things, you know, go to sports games, go to movie theater or whatever, just get 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 the vaccine. I'm sorry, I'm not gonna play along with that. I'm not gonna play that game. I'm not gonna go along with that at all. So that's why I'm not gonna get the vaccine right now. And I probably won't really ever. Um, but but again, the government, our government, the elites, are trying to make this make this push that if you want funding back, um, you must get the vaccine or else face consequences. So President Biden, um, a couple of days back, has made a sorry, <laughs> sorry, I'm bolting right there. Anyways, um, President Trump Biden made a. Um, order a couple of days ago, basically telling, uh, ordering that any business in the United States that has over a hundred employees, they must require their employees to get the vaccine or be subjected to daily testing or else be fired. And or I'm going to repeat that because and this is not just, a, you know, federal government, it was started with just federal employees. But then a couple of hours later, he um, made, um, he grew it into, to all employers, all businesses, private, private businesses, government businesses, and all that. So if you, if you have, a, if you own a company, if you're working with a company that has over 100 employees, Basically, according to Biden, he's going to use the power of the federal government to force that company to force you to get the vaccine or be fired. I mean, that's absolutely insane. I mean, that, that he does not have the power to do that under the Constitution. I mean, this is a complete authoritarian, blatant authoritarian, authoritarian move right here. So here's President Biden talking about that right here. As president is to protect all Americans. So tonight, I'm announcing that the Department of Labor is developing an emergency rule to require all employers with 100 or more employees that together employ over 80 million workers to ensure their workforces are fully vaccinated or show a negative test at least once a week. Some of the biggest companies are already requiring this. United Airlines, Disney, Tyson's Food, and even Fox News. The bottom line, we're going to protect vaccinated workers from unvaccinated co-workers. I mean, that's just insane right there. That's completely insane. And just hearing that from the president is just, it's pretty scary, honestly. And what's been going on within the past, with especially what Democrats have been doing now, is that they're separating Americans between now between vaccinated and unvaccinated. And they they see the unvaccinated people as these these guys like kind of deplorable scoundrels of the earth who must be who must comply or be punished I mean that's that's freaky stuff right there that is scary stuff coming from the president of the United States right there and that's not good 
And I mean, he openly said in his press conference saying that it's, this is not about freedom and personal choice. So when the president of the United States says to you that something is not about freedom or personal choice or whatever, that's how you know that um, that he's probably not a president. He's actually a dictator. So here's what he had to say right here. And more people got their first shot in August than they did in July. But we need to do more. This is not about freedom or personal choice. It's about protecting yourself and those around you, the people you work with, the people you care about, the people you love. My job as president is to protect all Americans. I mean, that's just, that is completely insane stuff right there. Coming from the president of the United States. And of course, you know, the left is, you know, completely celebrating this, you know, saying that, yes, this is a, a great move from President Biden right here. Good on him. This is a, this is brave. He has the courage. That's what courage he has to make this move. Like, finally, we can get, probably get our freedom back because of this. Yes, nothing says freedom about saying that you must get the jab in order to keep your job. Yes, nothing says freedom about that. And I love kind of the the way they're talking down to people of against this, saying that, well, no one's forcing you to get the vaccine. It's your choice if you want, if you want to get the vaccine or not, but you must face the, face the consequences. I'm sorry, if, if the consequences are basically you must, you're going to lose your job, you can't, you know, go to sporting events, you can't participate in anything, you must still be required to stay in your home, and all that, you, you gotta stay away from people and all that. Um, that's not freedom. That's, that's corrosion right there. That's not personal choice. That is corrosion. And, I mean, that's how you tell just how far America has fallen <laughs> due to this. So that, the fact that people are actively, actively supporting this is absolutely insane. So I'll get to more of that more of that in just a little bit. First, you gotta go over to YouTube or the guy the free ball to check it out. So not only you get the rest of me talking about this COVID uh, vaccine mandate and all that, but also the um, me talking about kind of Romans 13 and how it applies to what's going on with this, and also the good stuff and match of the week. And remember, you follow you can find the show on other podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Otherwise, I'll see you next week. This is the God of Freedom Show. Alrighty, so now let's uh, continue on with this uh, COVID vaccine mandate and all that. Okay, so again, um, the left, you know, has is completely celebrating this, and and just, I mean, it's not surprising that they're celebrating this. I mean, there's been a few on the far left that wanted this mandate for a while, 
And let's be clear here. This is not going to stop here. This is only just the beginning of these mandates. It's going to start just with uh, companies with over 100 employees. Then it's probably go down to companies with like 75 employees, then 50, then 25. Then eventually all employees, all, all businesses. Then eventually, you know, they're going to start going to places like, you know, anyone who wants to go to a restaurant. They must be have a proven vaccine. And stuff is going to get, is going to get, um, it's going to continue on like that. There's no stopping this until people, unless people actually stand up against it. So that's exactly what needs to happen. But I got to get to that just a little bit. But again, what, what Biden's doing here is completely authorita- authoritative. And it's completely contradicting what he said not too long ago. I mean, this is this was like shortly after, um, you know, he after after the election. I guess he was asked whether or not he will mandate vaccines, and here's what he said about it. No, I don't think it should be mandatory. I wouldn't demand to be mandatory, but I would do everything in my power. Just like I don't think masks have to be made mandatory nationwide. Well, that suddenly changed right there. So, did he actually, you know, say, did he change his mind throughout, or did he actually believe, did he actually plan on, you know, mandating all along, but he was just saying that to just, um, distract people or something like that, to lie to people? Whether the case may be, I mean, he, he's, he's completely contradicting, he completely contradicted himself here. It's completely insane. And so, what needs to happen is that people need to stand up against this. Do not comply with this nonsense. Do not. If your company is going to force you to get the vaccine or get tested, simply say, no, I'm not going to do it. I'm not going to do it at all. And don't quit either. Don't quit. Make them fire you. Make them fire you for it. Because not only you get a good lawsuit, but it just sends a good message there that you will not go down without a fight. And that's exactly what needs to happen. Thankfully, not only people are kind of waking up to this and will fight back, but also some governors are fighting back. So, for example, um, Governor Brian Kemp here in Georgia has said that he's n- he's not going to go along with his nonsense at all. And here's what he tweeted out on that on that night. Quote, I will pursue every legal option available to the state of Georgia to stop this blatantly unlawful overreach by the Biden administration. <laughs> Great. And that's, that is excellent, excellent stuff right there. And that's why I'm glad to live in Georgia. I know a lot of people hate Brian Kemp, especially a lot of conservatives hate Brian Kemp. Due to what happened to in the election and all that nonsense, I mean, for me, I don't believe the election, election was stolen, so I don't, so I don't see the reason personally that why, why I hate him. But you can't deny that he's been a pretty solid governor, and and I, I mean, I had no doubt that he was going to do this, but I'm glad to get confirmation from him. So that's why I'm glad to have him as governor. And to live in the state of Georgia. 
And thankfully, you know, other places like Florida, of course, you know, Ron DeSantis. I mean, that's no surprise. <laughs> he's, he's not going to go for this. I mean, the governor of Texas, Greg Abbott, uh, the governor of Tennessee, the governor of South Carolina, and many other states are not, have said, they're not going to go along with this. They're not going to enforce this at all, which is, which is absolutely great. That is absolutely excellent. And thankfully, there are also businesses who have said they are not going to, they're not going to enforce this. There may have been many businesses who have said, who have over 100 employees that have said, sorry, we're not going to enforce this. Among them is the Daily Wire, the conservative news site. So here's um, the CEO, Jeremy Boring. Um, this is right after Biden made the announcement. So here's Jeremy Boring explain, explaining what the Daily Wire is going to be doing. Here's the video right here. All right. Today, Joe Biden announced he was going to use the full force of the federal government to mandate that all companies with 100 plus employees force their workers to be vaccinated or subject them to weekly tests for COVID-19. I just got off the phone with our lawyers, and I just want to reiterate something that I already said today on Twitter. No, the Daily Wire does have more than 100 employees, but we won't be enforcing Joe Biden's unconstitutional and tyrannical vaccine mandate. That's it. We'll use every tool at our disposal, including legal action, to resist. Biden's ultimatum will impact over 80 million private sector workers. Companies that refuse to comply will face up to $14,000 in fines for every single violation. So I'm sure most companies will probably just do it. They don't have much choice. We won't. It's not that we're anti-vaccine. I'm personally very pro-vaccine. I think the COVID vaccines are probably the greatest scientific achievement so far in the 21st century. And I think the speed at which they were created may be Trump's greatest achievement as president. They seem to do a pretty good job preventing hospitalization and a great job preventing death from COVID-19. That's terrific. If I were a dictator, I'd probably make you get it. But I'm not a dictator, and neither is Joe Biden. He has no right to impose this burden on American businesses. How are we supposed to pay for it? What are we going to do with all these new liabilities that we incur from injecting ourselves into the private health decisions of our employees? More to the point, he has no right to impose this burden on the American people. It's anti-science, and it's totalitarian, and we cannot comply with it. I say anti-science because the mandate contains no exceptions for those in low-risk demographic groups. There's no exceptions for those with natural immunity. Also, there's no taking into account the fact that these vaccines are pretty effective. So if you're vaccinated, congratulations, you're at low risk from COVID-19, whether your neighbor's vaccinated or not. And that's good news since your vaccinated neighbor can still transmit the damn disease. And I say it's tyrannical because using unelected bureaucratic machinery like OSHA to force small businesses into becoming the vaccine and testing enforcement arm of the federal government is definitionally anti-democratic. It marks a dramatic break with our constitutional order. According to Reuters, 75% of American adults are already vaccinated. At least they've already received one dose of the vaccine. And 53%, according to the CDC, are fully vaccinated. So people who want the COVID vaccine already have it. And those who don't want it shouldn't have to get it because it's a free country. It's not your job to protect me from me. And you already have the tools to protect yourself from me. So Joe Biden has no compelling reason to encroach on our liberties, other than he just doesn't like what we do with them. Well, guess what? Joe Biden isn't your mom. The government isn't your mom. And your employer sure as hell isn't your mom. We've already watched for over a year and a half as Americans have ceded liberty after liberty to wannabe tyrants like Anthony Fauci. 
They broke our economy. They locked us in our homes. They destroyed our supply chains. They crushed our small businesses. They massed our children. Enough. That is enough. So the answer is no. No, the Daily Wire won't be enforcing Joe Biden's petty tyranny. We've already retained legal counsel, and we're prepared to go to battle with this administration to put an end to their unconstitutional bullshit. We hope other people and other businesses will join us. If they do, great. If they don't, that's fine too. There's got to be a line, and for us, this is it. So Joe, hard pass. Good on them. Good on the Daily Wire. I mean, there's a reason why I love the Daily Wire right there. It's because they're not afraid of doing this right here. So, uh, I mean, if you, if you had the ability, go to subscribe to them because, you know, they were probably, I mean, again, they, they're based in Tennessee. So likely, I mean, the governor there won't allow it. I know the Tennessee, Tennessee government governor has said, I'm pretty sure he has said that he's not going to go along with it. But if somehow, if it gets to the point where somehow OSHA and, you know, Biden can get around the state authority and go, you know, go after the wire, they're going to need a lot of support. So definitely go support them. And I'm pretty sure many, go support all these other companies who are not going to enforce this nonsense right here. And there are going to be employers who are not going to enforce this. I mean, I know the company I work at, I'm pretty... Pretty positive. I'm pretty sure that they're not going going to force us to get the vaccine. I mean, not only this, we're in Georgia, so it probably won't matter anyways. But even then, I don't see my company doing that because it's a pretty conservative company for for doing that. So, so that's a good thing. And but also, it doesn't need to just go with governors. Or businesses, it needs to go to individual people too. Even people, people vaccinated and unvaccinated, need to come together and stand against this nonsense. Stand against it. This is the, the President Biden is not again like Jeremy was saying. Biden is not your parent. He's not your mom or dad. He's not your boss or anything like that. He he does not have the right to tell you. What you can and cannot do based off if you have a jab or not. If you have a shot. And if you look at other countries, this has happened. Look at France. Vaccinated and unvaccinated people are coming together saying, we're not going to go with, along with these vaccine mandates. <laughs> Make us. And that's exactly what needs to happen here in America. People need to stand up. Because, I mean, people did not stand up really during lockdowns. But now is the time for that to stand up. I'm not saying going full on violent, going full on civil war, civil war here. But there needs to be some kind of civil disobedience, peaceful, but still civil disobedience, because we cannot allow the gov- government to um, continue this nonsense. All right. So now let's kind of move on to the um, next topic, which does relate. Do you want to talk about here? So the next topic I want to get to is Romans 13. So as I'm kind of saying that, we need to stand up and stand up against the government, against this nonsense and all that. You probably, there will be people pointing out saying, you know, I'm a Christian. 
And doesn't say in the Bible, say in Romans 13, that you need to submit to the government and all that? Well, um, yes, it does. There's a there's a point there's that several points in scripture that's saying that we do need to submit to government authority authorities. So let's real quick go to Romans thirteen. All right, so we are in uh, Romans thirteen. And we're going to start from the beginning of it. And probably just read the whole thing. Maybe. Anyways, let's, let's start with verse 1. Every person is to be sub, in, in subject, subjection to the governing, authority, governing authorities. For there is no authority except from God, and those which exist are established by God. Therefore, whoever resists authority has opposed the ordinance of God, and they who have opposed will receive condemnation upon themselves. For rulers are not a cause of fear or good be- or for good behavior, but for evil. Do, do you want to have no fear of authority? Do what is good, and you will have praise from the same. For it is a minister of God to you for good. But if you do what is evil, be afraid, for it does not bear the sword for nothing. For it is a minister of God, an avenger who brings wrath on the, on the one who practices evil. Therefore, it is necessary to be in a subjection, not only because of wrath, but also because of uh, conscience' t- sake. For because of this, you also pay taxes for rulers or servants of God, devoting themselves to this very thing. Render to all what is due to due them, tax to whom taxes due, custom to whom custom, and fear to whom fear, and honor to whom honor. Owe nothing to anyone except to love one another, for he who loves his neighbor has fulfilled the law. For this, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not uh, covet, you shall... And if any, if there is any other commandment, it is summed up in this saying. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does not wrong... does no wrong to a neighbor, therefore love is the fulfillment of the law. Do this knowing the time that is already the hour for you is to waken from sleep. For now salvation is nearer to us than than when we believed. The night is almost gone and the day is near. Therefore let us lay aside the deep deeds of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let's behave properly as in the day, not in the corrosing or drunkenness, not in sexual promiscuity or sens- sensuality, not, not in strife, not in jealousy. But put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh in regard to his lust. Alright, so that was Romans 13. And as we saw, it's very clear that, you know, we are, as Christians, we are commanded, commanded by God as Christians to submit to government authorities. As Paul was saying here, um, you know, the government is supposed to be, you know, minister of God, and the purpose of government is to kind of restrain sinners, as is to restrain the depravity of man. So that's why they're called kind of ministers of God because they do, because that's that's their main purpose, and to reward those who do who do good. So I mean, 
it's very clear that, you know, as Christians, we are to, you know, pay our taxes, you know, follow, do follow the laws and all that, and, you know, do good and, you know, and do, to avoid evil. But we need to be clear here how, how Paul is describing what the, the government here. With the way that Paul is describing the government here is the government is, you know, as is a minister of God who does good on behalf of him and punishes evil. But, I mean, again, that's the, that's the purpose of government. However, there is a point where the government can and will, where the government can't, you know, reverse that and completely divert from the purpose God set out for them. And to the point where they actually reward evil and punish the good. Uh, Pastor John MacArthur actually did a great sermon on this not too long ago. I believe back in June or so, he did a sermon um, with that exact title right there. And it's actually a very solid, solid um, sermon. I would uh, definitely encourage y'all to go check it out. But, I mean, that's that's where that's kind of where we got here in the United States. And so our government today, especially, has gotten to the point where they are punishing the good, but rewarding those who do evil. And we've got to be clear here on who's defining what is evil and good. God is defining what is evil and good here. So whatever's evil in his eyes is, you know, what we should avoid. And what is ever good in his eyes is what we should follow. But our government, our society has fallen so far from God and his and his uh, values and all that, and we got to the point where government here in America is going to punish good, but reward evil. And you know, John MacArthur kind of hits on this, but what I mean by this is that it's rewarding, for example, um, homosexuality, same sex marriage, same sex marriage. Is, is you know encouraging that, you know giving applause to that. Uh, again, also uh, transgenderism, you know gender fluidity and all that, and giving the applause and giving the rewards and all that. I mean, not just the government, but society in general. But if you, for example, if you're a church who defy the lockdowns. You must be punished. Uh, Grace Community Church ran by John MacArthur was under threat from the California government because they opposed lockdowns. They refused to go along with it. Thankfully, they succeeded by the grace of God, but they still were attacked nonetheless. And not only that, I mean, over the, we've seen over the past decade where people are canceled for saying something that's true their, their lives are completely ruined and courage destroyed because they said something that was true that went against the the so-called establishment. And so, when the government is doing evil, when the government is doing evil and supporting evil and punishing those who do good and are, is completely against what God considers considers good, 
we got to ask the question, are we actually supposed to be in subject to that? Are we supposed to be to follow that government and all that? Now, I believe this, we've got to be clear here. Is that... Uh, what I'm not saying is that Christians should um, get armed, start slaughtering people, slaughtering government employees and all that. That's not how Christians should react. Christians, you know, should be um, peacefully, um, civil, disobedient, and are willing to face the consequences. Are willing to face punishment and persecution. Because we are, we are told exactly what's, <laughs> what's going to happen. We got to be clear here. Um, when the government is doing evil, we have no, we have no reason to follow that, and that's really what Romans thirteen is referring to. What Romans thirteen is referring to is a government that does good, according to God, not according to them. Good according to God. So does this apply? Does Romans thirteen, uh, Christians, you know, following the government? Does that? Or being subject subject to the government, rather, does that follow? Does that apply to the COVID vaccine mandate? And my simple answer is no, it doesn't. It simply doesn't because the way they're going about this, the way the you know the government is trying to separate people and persecute people, or, or getting to the point where they will persecute people. Who won't get it? I mean, the simple answer is no. <laughs> that Romans 13 does, doesn't apply here. So Christians should very well be against this. I'm not saying that you do not get a vaccine. If you want to get a vaccine, that's perfectly fine. That is perfectly fine if you want to get a vaccine. Because I'm personally, I'm not anti-vaccine. But I'm definitely anti-vaccine mandate. So, if you... If you want to get vaccinated, that's probably fine. But we should definitely be against any kind of mandate like this. Especially when it starts affecting the church. Because I mentioned this a couple weeks, I think, I believe, a couple episodes back, or the last episode, where there's churches who are acquiring their congregation to get vaccinated or they cannot attend service. So that's where this is going. And eventually the government probably will start ordering churches to, to do that. And as we saw, the church, I mean, government was already trying to rule over churches throughout the pandemic. We saw that in California, where Grace Community Church. We also saw that in Canada, where um, pastors were arrested for meeting, for having church, for meeting, for gathering. And that's completely insane. But you saw all throughout these um, so-called professing Christians saying and shouting Romans 13, Romans 13, and all that. But, so, when you what you're saying is uh, somehow the government has more authority than God, has more th- has authority over the church. So that's what happened. We have authority, sorry. We have a command from God to meet together, to gather together, and to not neglect it. So are we supposed to obey the government when they say to not meet together and no disobey God in that? Well, no, we're not supposed to. We're not supposed to do that. 
The government is not the authority here. The government is not does not have authority over the church. There's only one authority of the church, and that is Christ. Jesus Christ is the head of the church. So let's real quick go to Romans 13. Oh, sorry, Romans 12. So Romans 12, chapter um, verse 4 through 5. For for just as we have many members in one body, and all, mem- all the members do not have the same function, so we, who are many, are one body in Christ, and individual members of one another. So kind of the church is often described as the body of Christ, as you know, all, all of us, all believers, make up you know different parts of the body. The kind of like how you've know, got fingers, you got ears, eyes, um, toes, and um, got organs inside of our heart, our stomach, our liver, and all that. Our legs, um, there's individual parts of the body, and also we have. Also, kind of almost the central point of it is the head. And that's Christ. So Christ is the head of the body, body of the church. Christ is the head of the church. He has authority over the church. He is the only authority over the church. Not the government, only Christ. And so, when it comes to things, when it comes to whether to obey God or obey government... We should definitely, all day, every day, obey God. If God says to do A, but the government says do not do A, uh, we better do A. It's as simple as that. So let's quickly go to Acts, real quick. Acts chapter 5. All right, so again, we're at Acts chapter 5, starting from verse 27. When they brought them, when they had brought them, they stood before the council, they had the high priest questioned them, saying, We gave you strict orders not to continue teaching in this name, and yet you have, fulfilled, you have filled, this, filled Jerusalem with your teaching and intend to bring this man's blood upon us. But Peter and the apostles answered, We must obey God rather than man. The God of our fathers raised up Jesus, who you have put to death by hanging him on a cross. Cross. He is the one whom God exalted to his right hand as a prince and savior to grant repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And we are witness, witnesses of these things, So and so is the Holy Spirit whom God has given to those who obey him. So, this was, uh, sorry, this was Simon Peter speaking. And he said, you know, they were given strict orders by the high priest, or by the Pharisees, saying to not preach the gospel anymore. <laughs> but the apostles completely ignored that and went on preaching the gospel because they were commanded by Christ, by Jesus, to Share the gospel of all creation. So, when it comes to a commandment from God, we are to obey it. And whether or not the government says we can't, we still have to obey it. So if it comes to a point where we're, we had to you know, obey God, 
but in return we are going to be punished by the government for doing so, then so be it. In fact, we should expect that. We should absolutely expect that. I would actually be surprised if that comes to here in America, especially what's going to be going on now with this vaccine, with vaccine mandate. And I would actually be surprised if this eventually gets to the point where they will start requiring churches to require its members to be vaccinated. So again, we should be we should expect this. We should expect persecution from the world because the world hates us. So let's quickly, quickly go through a couple of ver- or a few verses. Uh, let's go first to Matthew chapter ten or chapter five. So again, we're in Matthew chapter 5, starting from verse 10. This is in the, the video 2, in Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. Blessed are those who have been persecuted for the sake of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward in heaven is great, for in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Now no, notice Jesus' words here. He didn't say, if you're blessed are you if you're persecuted. Blessed are you who have been persecuted. Or in verse 11 when Jesus says, blessed are you when, pe- when people assault you or persecute you. Not if, when. So what Christ is saying here is that we should expect persecution. And we, not, we, not should, be, we should not be surprised by it. And the reason why we should not be surprised by it is because the world hates us. The world will hate us because they hated Christ. So let's go to John chapter 15. So John chapter 15, starting from verse 18. If the world hates you, you know that it hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would have loved, would love its own. But because you ha- you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world because of this, the world hates you. So because Christ chose us out of the world before the foundation of the earth, before because he got us out of the world, believers, we are to be expected, we are to be hated by it. We should expect it. We're supposed to be hated by the world because of our belief in Christ. It's as simple as that. So now let's go to Second Timothy. Uh, chapter 4. So, Second Timothy, chapter 4, uh, starting with verse 12. Right. Hold up, I made a mistake of my typer. Yeah, wait, right back. Alright, sorry, I'm gonna type it on my notes right here. So it's actually 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 12. And it says this Indeed, all who desire to live a godly live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. And now let's go to 1 Peter chapter 4. So I think this is where I got my t- Type it right here because I guess I got <laughs> got them mixed up or whatever. 
but this is actually second uh, first Peter chapter four, starting from verse twelve. And here's what Peter said here. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal among you which comes upon you for your testing as though some strange thing were happening to you. But to the degree that you share the sufferings of Christ, keep on Yeah, sorry, keep on rejoicing so that also at the revelation of his glory you may rejoice with exultation. If you are reviled for the name of Christ, you are blessed, because the spirit of glory and of God rest on you. So scripture is clear here that we should expect and as we be surprised by persecution and fat, we should be we should rejoice in it. We should rejoice because of our suffering in Jesus Christ, because of his of his, you know his, I'm sorry. We should rejoice because of the goodness that will come out of it because of the glory of God over it. And because, sorry, I don't know what I'm trying to say here. But again, we, we should expect it otherwise. And it will get bad. It will, it will get bad. It will get hard. But thankfully, we, we will, it will stop because eventually all of it, all of evil, all of sadness and all of that will be wiped out. And there will be new heavens and a new earth. New earth. As Peter says in Second Peter 3.13. Sorry, I went past it. Second Peter 3.13. But according to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. So at the end of all things, when all is said and done... There'll be new heavens and new earth. Will be there will be no more evil, no more sin, no more sickness, no more death, or anything like that. All that all that would mean be new. It will be fully restored to what God created us to be before the fall of man. So that is that's our hope. That's our hope of restoration, right there. So that's why we should rejoice. That's probably what I'm trying to say earlier, right there. That exactly that exactly is why we should rejoice when we being persecuted because of the great hope of the restoration we should, we have in Jesus Christ. Alright, so now let's move on to the final topic of this episode. Alright, so the final topic of this episode I want to hit on is the subject of Calvinism. So Calvinism, you know, it's a big thing in Christianity, and it's a very kind of controversial thing to talk about. It's a very kind of touchy subject to hit on because just all the misconceptions around Calvinism and Reformed theology more broadly, and just kind of things around, I mean, there's reasons for that, which I'll, I'll get to, but before I kind of get to that, I want to make a disclaimer right here. So my point of, you know, talking about this is not to boast Calvinism as some sort of, like, this great thing or whatever, as it's like, as, as some kind of idol. I'm not, gonna, I'm not trying to make an idol out of Calvinism. Because honestly, at the end of the day, it doesn't really, it's not really that important. I mean, I think is you know, great, is it, is it a set of beliefs? 
that I believe is biblical, but we got to be careful not to elevate it as some kind of you know Calvinism as you know some sort of idol or something like that above put it above God. So that's not what I'm trying to do here. I just want to make that disclaimer, and I'm not gonna I'm not trying to shame anybody who was not a Calvinist. If you're not a Calvinist, as long as you you know, as long as if you are a true believer in Christ and are following his commandments and all that, you're good. I mean, you're you're okay. You're not a heretic if you don't, if you're not a Calvinist or anything like that. So don't worry. It doesn't really matter to me if you're not a Calvinist. It really doesn't. Honestly, most people I know, especially at church, are not Calvinists. And that's probably fine for me. Most of my family is not Calvinist. I'm probably, I'm probably the only one. And it's probably fine. That is perfectly fine. This is just where I come down on, on theology. So I just really wanted to kind of, I just want to make that disclaimer right, right, right away before I get really deep into, into the subject. But obviously where I come down on it is I am a Calvinist. I am, I am reformed. This is just from me really over the past year, kind of studying the word and studying guys like R.C. Sproul, John MacArthur, and all of them, just kind of, you know, reading them and studying them. It's really, you know, kind of brought me into it. And return has brought me closer, me personally, to God. It's really strengthened my relationship with him. So, so now let's really kind of dive into Calvinism and what it is, and the kind of different beliefs that are surrounding it. So what is Calvinism, per se? Where did it come from? Who did it come from? Because obviously, from the name of it, you sound like, oh, maybe it started from someone, and that it kind of, their name kind of went into, into it, whatever. So obviously, kind of the root of Calvinism is actually from the Re- Protestant Re- Reformation. That's where it came from. <clears throat> because if you kind of study Martin, Martin Luther and kind of his, uh, his beliefs and all that, you'll see that he was what we consider today um, Reformed or Calvinist because he believed a lot of things that Reformed theology believes. And a lo- a lo- another big player also in the Reformation was John Calvin. So John Calvin was the, I believe he's a French theologian. Yeah, he's from France, and uh, Martin Luther was from Germany. And, you know, he was big around the Reformation, I believe. I'm pretty sure they were alive at the same time. Um, <clears throat> but anyways, you know, he was big on us, a big proponent for the Protestant Reformation. He, he and Martin Luther really what is what got it started, what grew it, and all that, which is great. And also... With that came kind of the set of beliefs that it didn't really start with him. It didn't really start with John Calvin. It didn't really start for from uh, um, Martin Luther. It kind of originated from Augustine. I forget the other guy where it came from. It was before Augustine that it sort of kind of came from. Although it came from, um, honestly, it came from the Bible, but it was recognized later by guys like Constantine. Constantine not Constantine, sorry, um, Augustine, 
and um, eventually, of course, Martin Luther and John Calvin and so on. So, obviously, John Calvin, that's where the name Calvinism comes from. So, basically, what Calvinism is, is basically kind of the way, a different kind of a form of theology that really, the best way I just kind of describe it before I really get into the details of it, that kind of explain it more, the simplest explanation for it is basically it's like kind of, it focuses a lot on the self-sovereignty of God regarding our salvation and how he is completely sovereign over it. He, I mean, he's the one that saves us. He's the one that, you know, makes us clean, you know, and draws us, draws us to him and all the, and keeps us secure and for eternity. And also that we, because of our fallen nature, had nothing to do with it. We had nothing to do with it whatsoever. We it wasn't even our choice, honestly. And I'll get to that just a little bit. But it's kind of, I guess the kind of best explanation to come out with on what Calvinism is, is it, it gets a lot deeper than that, and it, it expands a lot more into more reformed theology, because Calvinism is kind of a, it's a part of of reformed theology overall, so it's, it's kind of a it's a good portion of it. But it's not the only part of Reformed theology. There's a lot more that goes into Reformed theology than just just the Calvinism stuff. So one of the kind of points of Calvinism that's often recognized that is associated with Calvinism when people could bring it up is what is known as the TULIP. And the TULIP is the acronym for uh, five different kind of wor- or phrases ter- 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 or terms rather. And those are, you know, total depravity, unconditional election, linum atonement, irresistible grace, excuse me, and perseverance of the, of, of the saints. And so what I'm going to do is kind of really break down on what, you know, that the word mean, what the phrase means, and get kind of down to the scriptural support for it. So, obviously, let's start with uh, the first one, total depravity. So, total depravity simply is referring to the civil nature of man, the fallenness and wickedness of mankind. And, you know, this part, this is probably the most widely accepted part of Calvinism, uh, the five points of Calvinism, because even, even you know, a lot of the Armenians are kind of Armenian you know, folks teaches, teaches as well, because teaches, you know, that we are wicked beyond prepare, we cannot earn our salvation or anything like that. And of course, you know, as I've gone through many times on the show, there's a core scriptural support of it. And it's the same verse I keep going back to because this is probably the best scriptural explanations of our fallen nature. So let's first go to Ecclesiastes seven twenty. Jafar Isaiah. Here we go. Ecclesiastes chapter 7, verse 20. Indeed, there is not a righteous man on earth who continually does good and who never sins. So, what basically is in Ecclesiastes, what he's saying here 
is that, you know, there is no one who is righteous and who is perfect, who does not sin whatsoever. And it's perfectly clear. If you look at humanity, that's perfectly clear. And now let's go to Romans chapter 3. New Testament. Too far. Here we go. Romans. Go. Chapter 3, starting from verse 10. As it is written, there is none righteous, not even one. There is none who understands, there is none who, who seeks, there is none who seeks for God. All have turned aside, together they have become useless. There is none who does good, not even one. There's, their throat is an open grave, where their tongues they keep deceiving, the, po the poison of apps is under their lips. Whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness, their feet are swift to shed blood, Destruction and misery are in their paths, in the um, path of peace they have not known. There's no fear, fear of God before their eyes. And so the final verse of this um, part right here I want to get to is, of course, chapter 3, um, verse 23. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So, according to those passages right there, it's very obvious that that sin has affected mankind it has completely, you know, brought it down. You know, mankind is, is just we're not good. We're not we're not righteous or anything. Like that. We're not good. We're wicked to pray beings. It's simple as that. And it's very scripture is very clear about that. And it's very clear if you look on the outside, especially look at nine eleven. Nine eleven is a result of sin. Is a result of the depravity of man. And that is very clear. There's nothing righteous, of course, nothing righteous about that. That is, in a righteous world, that would never happen. It's only due to the sinfulness of man that that tragedy happened. And scripture is very clear about this. I mean, Romans, Romans is very good, almost, uh, I didn't say commentary, but I guess it's the best word to come up with. It's a very good kind of commentary and explanation of the gospel. It starts with the sinfulness of man, and it gets into salvation through Christ, and it kind of gets to after it, you know how, and how you know Christians, you know, should live their lives, and how we should obey God and all that, and how we should, you know, expect persecution and, and all. That. It's, it's good explanation of the gospel right there. Romans is, and so. Again, that is pretty much total depravity, is the wickedness of man, the stiffness, sinful nature of man. And, and one point, one thing that R.C. Sproul has said many times, that is a great point, it's a famous quote, is, is this, that um, we, we're not sinners because we sin, we sin because we're sinners. And that's, that's again, as a quote from R.C. Sproul, and it's very profound because, you know, you listen you listen to it at first, you're saying, you know, what does that mean? But if you look deep into it, it actually, it, it is a good point because those two things make completely different, make two completely different points. So if you believe that we are sinners because we sin, you, you when you look at that, we're only sinners when we sin. 
So that means there is a point that we are not sinners, that we are perfect and righteous. But that is not the case whatsoever. We are not righteous. There's no point <laughs> at the point that we are, we are we are righteous. Now, thanks to the to the delight of death and burial, death and burial, burial and res- resurrection of Jesus Christ, we are made righteous through through Him and inside of God. Now, our sinful nature doesn't go away. We still sin, but in the eyes of God, we are righteous, and that's key. There, key there is to the eyes, um, according to the eyes of God, the eyes of God. But again, going back to to the quote, there's no point where we are not sinners. So that's why our Paul made that distinction. Say we're we sin. Because we're sinners. It's because we are sinners, that's why we sin. Due to the fallen nature of man, through Adam, and the first sin, we were played with sin. We were conceived in sin. So from the point of conception, we are sinners. And, and it's very, it's very fortunate that it happened. And that's the bad news of the gospel. But the good news is that we can be forgiven and saved through, through Jesus Christ. So again, that's, that is a total depravity right there. That's kind of the simple, simple exclamation. So now let's get into to more of the controversial part. Parts, rather. And one point I want to kind of make right here. That none the tulip itself, and none of these are separate. They all flow together. They all flow perfectly together. So if you understand total depravity... You understand uncontrolled election, and then you understand Lenin atonement, and then you understand irresistible grace, and at that point you understand the final part, the preservation, this perseverance, perseverance of the saints. So now let's get to unconditional election, otherwise known as the doctrine election or predestination. So this is a very, very controversial subject. I have actually talked about this on the show before, about the subject of predestination uh, specifically, and I actually wrote a piece on the God of Rain blog about it too. <clears throat> so what predestination or the doctrine of election is, is essentially the idea that God, before the foundation of the earth, uh, chose certain people of whom he was going to save through Jesus Christ, who he's going to um, redeem, you know, draw to him, redeem through Christ, and um, give them eternal life, and all that. That's kind of a simple explanation of of the doctrine of election. It goes a little deeper than that, but it's kind of a simple explanation. And again, it's very it's very controversial for many reasons. So one of the reasons, one of the objections that come against in you know, a predestination and all that is that it's um it's unfair. For for example, it's very unfair that why would God choose to save certain people and not others? But the point I, I continue to make is that you know we don't deserve to be saved whatsoever. God doesn't have to save any of us. We deserve eternal punishment in hell for it and for for us for being for our sin. Exactly what our in, in a fair world, that's exactly what would happen. But thank, thankfully, God is a God of mercy, 
And so he decided to have mercy on a certain view that he chose. So the question is, you know, why would God choose, say, certain people versus others? The question you should ask is, why would God choose to save anyone when we don't deserve it? Um, the fact that he cho chose to save even one person is an act of mercy, is an act of grace. So that's kind of a that's kind of the counterpoint against that objection right there. And of course, there is, is scriptural support for this. So let's first go to John chapter six, verse forty-four. Oh, we're right to it. So again, John chapter six, verse forty-four, and Jesus says this. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws draws me. Uh, excuse me. Let me start that over. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. So that's kind of a kind of a the, one of the best supporters of this, or one of it. Basically, saying we cannot go to Christ unless the Father draws the Father through the power of the Holy Spirit draws us to Him. So we cannot be saved unless we are drawn to him. So now let's go to Ephesians. Actually, Romans, I mean, sorry. Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8, verse starting from verse 28. And we know that God causes all things to work together for, for the good... For good to those who love God, to those who were called according to his purpose. For those he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his Son, so that he will be, be the firstborn among many brethren. And these to who, whom he predestined, he also called. And these whom he called, he also justified. And these whom he justified, he also glorified. And finally, let's go to Ephesians chapter 1. And we'll start from verse 3. So Philippians. Let's go back. Here we go. So again, uh, Ephesians chapter 1, starting from verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us, has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. Just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we would be holy and blameless before him in love. Uh, before him in love, he pre he predestined us to adoption, to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, to himself according to the intention of his will, to the praise and glory of his grace, which he freely bestowed on on us in in the beloved. In, in, uh, sorry, in the beloved. In him we have re have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which we he lavished on us in all um, wisdom and insight. He made known to us the mystery of his will according to his kind intention, which he purposed in him, with a view of ad administration and suit suitable to fullness of times that is summing up of all things in Christ, things in the heavens and things on the earth in him, things, things on the earth in him. Also, we have attained inheritance, having been predestined according to his purpose, who works all things either the counsel of his will. 
sorry, uh, one, one more. Castle of its will to the end that we who who were the first to hope in Christ would be to the praise of his glory. Alrighty, so so basically, it's very obvious that the doctrine of election, the idea of predestination, is supported among scripture. So going to Romans, Romans and Ephesians and John and the passage, passage John is very that's probably the, one of the best explanations and support for doctrinal election. And again, I know it's very controversial. I know, I know, I don't, I, and I know a lot of people don't believe it. But according, according to scripture, it is biblical. It is biblical. All right. So now let's move on to the next uh, part of the tulip, and that is a limited atonement. So limited atonement is probably one of the most controversial or one of the most widely debated parts of this whole other tulip of Calvinism because what it what it means. So limited atonement, what it means is like what like what is the sacrifice, you know, the death, burial, and resurrection of what like a Christ? Who does that apply to? Does it, does that apply to all people of the earth, or does that apply to a certain group of people? And according, you know, if you believe in, you know, the total depravity, into in course the doctrinal election, and so, for and because of that, the belief in Calvinism is that if you that Christ, um, the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ, the purpose, the atonement of Christ. The purpose of that was to redeem and save the elect, those who were chosen before the foundation of the earth. And I know this is very controversial. As you know, that could be the first time you're hearing this, like, wait. So that means that God like Christ only died for a certain few people, not all people. And yes, that is true. That is true. Before the again, before the foundation of the earth, according to the doctrine of election. God chose a certain group of people to be saved. Now, when I say group of people, I don't mean a specific race, a specific gender, or a specific ethnicity, or whatever. I mean, these are people of all ethnicities, all races and everything. All skin colors, all ages, no matter what. And, but before that foundation of the earth, God chose to save all those, all those people. In those specific people. And of course, you know, <clears throat> although he chose them, they still cannot enter without any, because, because of the fallenness of man, we, could, we still cannot enter even though we were chosen by him. So we, he still had to make the sacrifice. Jesus still had to come and make that sacrifice so that we can have our sins forgiven, so that we can make, be made righteous, so we, we can enter the kingdom of God. So that was the purpose of the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ to save and redeem the elect. And no, again, it's hard for some people to hear, but and that's that's simply the case. Especially, you know, according to Calvinism, that is simply the case. So the scriptural support of this, um, let's first go to Matthew, chapter one, verse twenty-one. 
far to far again. So again, we're in Matthew chapter 1, verse, um, we're going to do verse 21, yeah, 21. And it says this, She will bear his son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. So the key part of that verse is that he will save his people from their sins. His people, the people he has chosen for the foundation of the earth. So we are his people. Whom he, he has came to save. So now let's go to John chapter 3. So John chapter 3, verse um, starting with verse 14. As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so the Son of Man may, may, the Son of Man be lifted up. So that whoever believes in him have a believes in him will have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that, so that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send the Son into the world to judge the world, but that the world might be saved through him. He who believes in him is not judged, but he who does not believe has been judged already, because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. So the reason why that is kind of scriptural proof of it is because it is in kind of, especially in chapter 16, in verse 16, for God said the Lord that he loved the world, that he gave his only son, so that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. So the key word that is that whoever believes in him has eternal life. And so, those who believe... So the belief, so those who believe that Jesus is referring to is the elect, and those who do not believe are honestly are not the are not the elect, and so they will face the wrath of God. And so, so that's that's what is referring to. Right? That's why that's another great um, scripture support for it right there. And another kind of more popular scripture support for this note uh, for a uh, limited atonement is John chapter 10. So, John chapter 10, uh, starting from verse 11. I am the good shepherd, the good, sh the good shepherd lays down his life for the, the sheep. He who is a, who is he who is a hired hand and not a shepherd, who is not the owner of the sheep, sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees, and the wolf snatches them and scatters them. He flees because he is a hired hand and is not concerned about the sheep. I am the good shepherd, and I know my own, and my, and my own know me. Even as the Father knows me, and I know the Father, I lay down my life for my for the sheep. <clears throat> So the sheep he's referring to is the elect or the believers, the body of Christ, the church. That's that's who the sheep is. So if you go kind of to remember the kind of the 
sorry, it's right here. The parable of the lost sheep, and the 99 sheep, and the, lo- and the lost one. So the point is, you know, that sheep is still the lost sheep, is those who are alleged but have not been saved yet. And the point is that that, that lost sheep is still a sheep. It still belongs to the shepherd. So, even though there are many, there's so many sheep who are lost, Christ will still go out and find them. So that's probably, again, one of the best explanations for... It's especially, again, when you, when you look at it as kind of a... That's why it's called a tool because it kind of works, it moves together. The kind of is so when you have total depravity, it connects to that connects to total or to unconditional election because because we could because of depravity we have no capacity to choose God for our own. So he has a, he chose us and with the power of the Holy Spirit he draws us to him. Which I'll get to that here in just a little bit. So that moves down to the atonement to where because God chose us chose certain people before the foundation of the earth, it only makes sense that he came, that Jesus came for those the elect, not for literally everyone. Again, I know this that's very unpopular and very controversial, but that's simply the case, according to scripture. So the next part of um, the tulip is irresistible, irresistible grace. So what this means is that so when one is being drawn toward God, when God draws you, he, you know, he does it through the power of the Holy Spirit. And so when it happens, you can't reject it. You have no capacity to reject it, to reject that, and reject being drawn to him because of our depravity. And so, you know, people might be confused, like, wait, you know, I, I spoke to a friend about the gospel and they completely reject, rejected it. And yes, uh, this this word section needs to be made clear right here. So one is you know, simply there could be one who could possibly be the alleged, but when they hear it, when they actually just hear it from this regular person, they reject it as kind of nonsense, nonsense, whatever. But of course, you know that person that who's preaching the gospel can, you know, make that person think about it, but ultimately they can throw it out in their mind. But once the Holy Spirit enters and start, you know, moving them through you and takes a hold of your heart and draws John, John you tor- towards, towards, towards him, then at that point you cannot, you really, you have no capacity to move away, to reject or anything. You, you will be saved. You will be brought to repentance and we'll put your trust in Jesus Christ. That that's pretty much the process of salvation. Right there. And of course, that is this is supported by scripture. And I want to make the point is that it is the Holy Spirit that does kind of the work, if you will, that does the redeem redemption through the that does the drawing and all that. So let's go to Titus um three five real quick. Oops. Hebrews 
Titus. So Titus three five. Titus Titus three five says this: He saved us not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness, but according to His mercy, by the washing and regeneration and the renewing by the Holy Spirit. So it's the Holy Spirit that does the washing, that does the cleaning, and it does the redeeming, and all that. So, so now let's go to. Uh, John chapter 6, verse uh, 37. Oops, I went too far again. So again, John chapter 6, verse, uh, starting from verse 37. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and the one who comes to me I, I, certainly, I will certainly not cast out. For I come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. This is the will of him who sent me, in that of all that he has given me, I lose nothing but raise it up, raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who beholds the Son and believes in him will have eternal life, and I myself will raise him up on the last day. So next, let's go to Acts chapter 13, verse 48. Acts chapter 13. What's it? Verse 48. When the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing, glorifying the word of, word of the Lord, and as many had been appointed to eternal life, believed. So the key word in that is appointed, appointed by God to eternal life, chosen by God, or in other words, chosen by God to eternal life. And finally, Second uh, Corinthians, verse four, of chapter four, verse one through six. Oops, went to no, I didn't. Never mind. So, Second Corinthians chapter one, chapter sorry, chapter four, verse one through six. Therefore, since we have this uh, ministry, as we receive mercy, we do not lose heart. But we have renounced the things hidden because of shame, not walking in craftiness and adultering the word of God by by the manifestation of the truth of truth, commending ourselves to every man's conscience in the sight of God. And even our, if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing, in whose case of, of the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelieving so that they might not see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For we do not preach, oursel preach ourselves, but God Christ Jesus our Lord, and ourselves as your bondservants for Jesus' sake. For God who said, light, shall, light sh shall shine out of darkness, is the one who has shown in our hearts to give light, give the light of the knowledge of our, the glory of God in the face of Christ. So the point of this verse is, is really kind of, again, point out 
is that it this really re- kind of really relates to the doctrine of election. The point is, is that you know God does the work. It is God who is in charge of salvation, who does the saving. So if He's sovereign over that, how can, how can we have the capacity to um, reject it? Reject um, His power. We can reject someone simply, you know, t- telling the gospel to us. This is a regular person. But once the Holy Spirit works in us, we cannot reject that. And Scripture is very clear about this. And it's because the Holy Spirit does the saving, and that's also what makes it clear. So the final kind of uh, part of the tulip is the perseverance of the saints. It is also known as the doctrine of eternal security. So this one, and also total depravity, is the one of the two of the more accepted um, notions of the tulip. And, you know, many people, many people who are not Calvinists believe internal security. Because, you know, scripture is very, very clear about this. So let's go to uh, John chapter 10. So John chapter 10. Start from verse 27. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. And I have eternal life to them, and I gave give eternal life to them, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the, out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. So, so what Jesus is saying here is, you know, he not only is because... Not only are like him, are the, like the Son and the Father are one. You know, they are one God in three distinct persons: the Holy Spirit, the Son, and the Father. But you know, once you know the God has a grip of those He has saved, no one or nothing can snatch them out of His hand, and He won't uh, turn them away. He won't. Um, he won't toss them out, as Jesus says in uh, chapter six. So, I mean, that's very clear. And so now let's go to, finally goes to Romans chapter 8, verse 31. So Romans chapter 8, ver- starting from verse 31. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who is against us? He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him o- over for us all, how would he? How will he not also with him freely give us all things? He will bring a charge against God's elect. God is the one who justifies. God who God who is the one who condemns. Christ, who is the one who condemns? Christ Jesus is the, is he who died. Yes, rather who was praised. <clears throat> who is at the right hand of God? Who also intercedes for us? Who will separate us from the? Who would separate us from the love of God? From the love of, I'm sorry, who would separate us from the love of Christ? Will tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or peril, or a sword, or a sword? Just as it is written, 
for your sake, we are being put to death all day long for we're, we were considered, we were considered as sheep to, to, to be, to be slaughtered. But in all things, <clears throat> excuse me, sorry. But in all things, we over, overwhelmingly conquer through him who loved, who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any, any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. And one last verse I want to hit on is Ephesians chapter 4, verse 30. So again, Ephesians chapter 4, Verse 30. Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God who you were sealed for the day of redemption. So it's very clear that, you know, once we're saved, once we are in Christ, we are eternally secure and he will not toss us away or we we cannot be snatched away from him. It's, you know, it's because he is the one who does saving so our salvation relies on, on his faithfulness, on his work, and because his, on the word of Christ is sufficient, completely sufficient, and because God is sovereign, and faithful, and merciful, and just, and all that, and He will hold on to His elect. He will not toss us out or um, take away His salvation for us. So that's very clear. So that's what the perseverance of the saints is referring to. So that's that is pretty, that's a tolib right there. So the tolib again is that because tolib probably because of our we are sinful, depraved human beings, we have no capacity. We are not good. We're not righteous. We have no capacity to choose God for ourselves. We reject God, and because of that, because we have rejected God, God, we have no capacity to choose Him. So it makes sense to that point that God chose. To save us through his work, we are he saves us, and he actually he saved us before the foundation of the earth. And because he saved us, he chose us before before the foundation of the earth. It makes sense because it makes sense to point out that Jesus came to save his elect, to redeem his elect, and in the process of being saved. Because we have no capacity to choose God, it makes sense that we have no capacity to reject his power as well. So that's irresistible grace. And because of that, because of him, of his sovereignty, because of God's sovereignty, a power over salvation, and because of his faithfulness, we cannot be tossed out. We cannot lose his salvation for us. As simple as that. So that's kind of the Calvinism in a nutshell. It goes a lot deeper. Trust me, it goes a lot deeper. Um, if you're interested in learning more, I recommend, highly, highly recommend uh, Dr. R.C. Sproul's book, What is Reformed Theology? I mean, that is the basis of Reformed Theology overall. But he does go through um, through the tulip. He goes through it, and he gives a great explanation for each, each point. So because, you know, because of my study of the word... And, you know, what I've studied, you know, through, you know, Arsene Sproul and all of them. That's why I'm a Calvinist, because I d I've come to the point where I do believe, believe that, according to what Scripture says. 
But again, like I want to make this point again, I do not believe, I do not believe that those who are not Calvinists are somehow heretics or anything like that. Nor do I really care. I don't really care if you're a Calvinist or not. Excuse me. Again, again, like I said, um, my my family is not Calvinist. Majority of people I know are not Calvinists, and so that really doesn't matter to me. As long as you're, again, what ultimately matters. As long as you, if you truly believe in Christ, if you have repented of your sins, if you trust in Christ, you will be saved and you will receive eternal life. It's as simple as that. That is the simple message of the gospel because. Because of our simple nature, because because of that, we are in need of a savior. And through the power of Jesus, through the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, that is made possible. And if we put our trust in Him and repent, that can be made possible. We are have our sins forgiven, can be made new, and will receive eternal life. That is the gospel right there. So if, as long as you believe that. As long as you truly believe that and truly believe in Jesus Christ and follow his commandments, you're good. And by the way, following his commandments does not have bearing on your salvation. What I mean by that is that, you know, because of being saved, you had a desire to follow his commandments. But you're not going to be perfect at it, of course. I'm not perfect at it. You will screw up. Like everybody screws up. I screw up a lot with that. But... But the point is, as long as as long as you believe that, as long as you believe really the essentials of Christianity, that's perfectly fine. As long as you're not spilling basic heresy, I don't really care. I don't really care if you're Calvinist or not. My point of really kind of expounding on this is was to clear up common mis- misconceptions of that, and hope I did that. I hope I did kind of clear up some. Misconceptions, but if I didn't, I encourage you to continue to do your research and continue to learn about it. Because only so much I can say about it, because I'm still new at this, and new to Reformed theology. So I'm not going to be perfect at explaining this. So there's a lot more people who have done a lot more work in this um, nature, and I encourage y'all to go to them and to learn more from them if you're if you're interested. But again... Like I said, I don't really care if you're a Calvinist. As long as you, if you truly believe in Jesus Christ, that's all that matters. Alrighty, so now let's uh, move on to Scripture. Alrighty, so today we're going to be going to um, Acts. We still started to be going through Acts. And we're going to be starting chapter 11 today. And we're only going through verses 1 to 3. So... Anyway, let's start start from verse 1. Now the apostles and the brethren who were throughout Judea heard the Gentiles who had received the word of God. And when Peter came to Jerusalem, those who were circumcised took issue with him, saying, "You You went to uncircumcised men and ate with them. So that's where I'm going to stop for an hour right there. So, kind of give you a background of what has been happening here with Peter. So if you're called um, back to chapter 10, we got a man named Cornelius, a Roman centurion. 
who you know followed God, followed His commandments, but um, there was an angel that came to him and said, "Go find Peter, Simon Peter," and he went. He found Simon Peter, and Peter, uh, you know, shared the gospel with him, and Cornelius was saved, as well as a bunch of Gentiles. So now that's which leads us to this point right here, where there were Jews, you know, these are believers who were Jews, who were kind of, always kind of ticked off that Peter was sharing the gospel with Gentiles. And, you know, I will get to, you know, next week about, you know, Peter's explanation for that. But this is kind of very interesting right here, because originally it was thought that the, that the gospel, the way, or Christianity, what it came, it came to be, was simply for the Jews. But it turns out, it was not just for the Jews, but for all the world. Because God did not simply choose whom he was going to save out of the Hebrews, out of the Jews. He chose those he was going to save from all tribes, of all nations, of all tongues. And Jesus... And Jesus made it clear that to go out through all the world and make disciples of all nations. And also in Mark, he said, you know, go share the gospel with all creation. So all creation <laughs> means the Gentiles as well. So Peter was simply obeying that. And this is kind of where this kind of is, this is where kind of a tribalistic viewpoint that some a lot of Jews had. They saw you know, they looked down on the Gentiles. Solomon is nothing but a bunch of depraved enemy, depraved beings who were just nothing but ravaged dogs and all of that. It's pretty much how the you know how they were looked upon by the by um by the uh, Gentiles were looked upon by the Jews. So it was very unheard of for Jews to kind of talk and eat with Gentiles. But again, like I said, I'll get to Peter, Peter's explanation of it. That's very interesting. But again, again, gotta remember this is very the early part of the church, where they still thought it was just for the Jews. But of course, as we saw in chapter ten, is this is really the intro of it going from the Jews, not just from the Jew, not for not just for the Jews, but also to the Gentiles as well. And that's how this is where Paul comes in, that where he goes throughout the world to Rome, to all, all, all throughout, <laughs> to share the gospel. And that's where eventually the apostles were spread about all the land to share the gospel and are eventually martyred for it. So again, I'll get to I'll get to the rest of kind of Peter's explanation next week. All right, so now time for the good stuff of the week. So for good, for the good stuff of the week, um, I want to again talk about uh, what if, because what if just keeps you know getting better. So the, re- the this recent episode that released episode episode five of what if, um, it was it was a zombie episode. It's very interesting. It's basically it's it's kind of set and it's setting of it um, at the time of where Infinity War takes place. And this is where Thanos is, you know, hunting for the Affinity Stones and trying to find them. And the beginning of the episode actually begins with, you know, just after Thanos um, attacked the uh, Asgardian ship. 
And, you know, that's where, you know, if you remember, if any were, you know, Hulk came to try to um, take down Thanos, but he failed. But um, Thanos, um, I forget what his name was, but he um, he sent Hulk to um, to Earth to warn the Avengers. But if you if you remember, if any were, he went to Doctor Strange's place and found Doctor Strange and Wong, and eventually found you know Tony Stark and all of them. But what if he came here? He came. Um, uh, Bruce came to Earth, and everything was gone. Doctor Strange was gone. Wong was gone, and everything was chaos. And I, I, I mean, I'm go- I am going to get to spoilers right here. So the reason why. It's because there was zombie apocalypse. There was a disease that broke out. Um, actually, thanks to <laughs> Hank Pym. So if you remember in Ant-Man and the Wasps, where Hank Pym went into the quantum zone to find his wife, and in the movie, you know, she was fine. But in the show, she has somehow gotten some kind of disease in the quantum realm and spread it to Hank. And Hank came back from the quantum realm and spread it and started spreading it. And that's how it got out. And the Avengers tried to um, stop it, but they failed. And it ended up making it worse. They spread out throughout the world. <laughs> so that's what that's where pretty much Bruce Banner came to, came to. And eventually, you know, he is attacked by zombies, including like a zombie, um, zombie Iron Man, zombie Doctor Strange, and all of them. But he saved last minute by, um. By Hope, um, from by Hope from um, Ant Man the Wasps, who was the Wasps by the way, by, also by Spider Man, and all of them, and you know, in all those team you got Hope, you got Spider Man, you got um, Happy is on this team, you got uh, what's your name? I keep forgetting her name, but the bald lady in um, Black Panther who played Michonne in uh, The Walking Dead, and she's in there. And also you got Bucky, you know, they're one of the few survivors of the zombie apocalypse. And it kind of goes throughout, are them trying to find a cure for the disease? And again, it's a very good episode, but the one who takes really the, who's the star of this episode is Spider-Man. I might be biased because Spider-Man is my favorite Marvel hero, but still, he's a kind of the heart of this episode. And for reasons, for many reasons, because... The way, just just his personality and just the way he does things in this episode, in this episode. It's, it's very cool. And again, if you're not seen what if yet, definitely check it out. It's a really great show, and it only keeps getting better. I can't wait to see what the rest what the rest of the episodes are like and how it really connects to Phase Four. All right, so I think that's all I have for this episode. So I'll be back here next week with all the latest. My name is Sean Clinton, and this is God of Freedom Show. If you enjoy this episode of the God of Freedom Show, don't forget to like, share, and subscribe. Remember, you can find the show on our podcast, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. This episode is brought to you by Anchor. Thank you for listening and watching, and as always, all glory to be to God.